week two, Swing Pass is back. I'm your host, Adam Ruffner. I am joined, as always, by Daniel Cohen. We had Chicago staying atop the Central Division with their impressive 24-21 win over Minnesota. Colorado Summit make their debut in the AUDL on the road and go 2-0 to tie with Salt Lake atop the West Division. Action around the league elsewhere as we start to see more and more data at this beginning point in the 2022 season. Records all around the league and milestones. Just another kind of a bombastic week in the AUDL, despite it not necessarily being some top matchups everywhere, right? Yeah, I was going to say, like, it doesn't have the same, or I guess it didn't have the same... Uh, feel as the first week where we had the classic New York, D.C., Atlantic, Carolina. This one didn't have as many of those like headlining matchups, but I was pleasantly surprised. There were a good amount of good games this past weekend. Madison, of course, getting their 100th franchise win against Pittsburgh at home at Bree Stevens, getting to celebrate it with their fans, becoming the first AUDL franchise to reach the century mark. I think I've said that a hundred times this week. Uh, Yeah, it just, (laughs) if it wasn't necessarily a big time matchup in terms of playoff seating and orientation for later in the season and potential head to head, you know, tiebreaker um, effects, it was like, uh, you know, the Indy Detroit game, which set numerous offensive records in that one. And we'll get to in a bit, but (laughs) I think kind of the main course entree for this weekend was the game of the week between Chicago and Minnesota, the presumptive uh, one and two seeds, depending on which flavor you like a little bit more in the central division heading into the season and meeting right away. It was the windchills first game and Chicago, of course, got their start in week one at home against Pittsburgh, pulling out a win. And it did seem like that game experience advantage that the union had on the wind chill really played out on Saturday night. They just, they looked more polished. They looked more cohesive as a team. They ran their sets. I think a lot better than Minnesota did kind of getting back to that polishing Uh, Dalton Smith made a fantastic debut for Chicago leading that D line counter attack. Pavel Giannis, I think despite some of the throwaways and mistakes was still so vital to their attack in that wind all night. He was picking up the disc in double teams and shredding it, or at least getting the disc initiated and getting it into the hands of the union's offensive playmakers in advantageous positions. I, I, I'm starting to ramble, and I think it's because you and I went into the season, and, and we'll get to it in a second when we get to our interview <laughs> this week with Chicago head coach uh, Dave Woods. We... We picked Minnesota as the presumptive favorite. Now, we did oh, yeah. say on paper, I think, almost every on time. On paper. And and yes. we did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're Chicago fanboy number one. I, I think you got lumped <laughs> in with me a little bit here and had to lie down in front of the bus respectfully uh, as Dave Woods drove it over us a bit in this interview. But, you know, we picked Minnesota as, to be the first place finisher in the Central and to possibly represent this division at Championship Weekend. And... Chicago looked like the better team for the final three quarters on Saturday night. I think Chicago is a lot deeper 
than we might have given them credit for. Because it is yes. really easy to look at their offseason losses and be like, yeah, they, they're missing three or four of their primary defensive playmakers. You know, their offense isn't as deep as it was last year, again, on paper, without Keegan North, Pat Trywise, Nico Lake, guys that were just these nice plug-and-play pieces that felt like they brought a lot of balance. But I give Chicago a ton of credit for moving guys around. Like, it feels like they're integrating their new pieces probably better than most other teams at this point, at least through the first two weeks. Kyle Rutledge is a fantastic handler in the backfield. He's a rookie. Sam Kaminsky switching over to the O-line after playing mostly D-line last season. He's been great. I mean, obviously Dalton Smith is such a great and important addition for this D-line counterattack. It, it felt like they they really surprised me with the the top to bottom balance that they have on the roster after so many uh, you know star power losses this offseason. So I, I I'll definitely take the loss for <laughs> assuming that Minnesota will win the division. Of course, the season is far from over for either of these two teams. We talked about it before. Minnesota integrating these new pieces because of of how central they probably will be to the offense and how deep again they are on paper it's going to take some experimenting and I think certain teams just click faster than others I still feel like Minnesota should be fine later in the season but yeah it just might take some time there might be some growing pains early on I especially want to give a shout out to kind of that also ran list that I think we ignored that was filling in for so many of the star level playmakers that we've been mentioning on the Chicago D-line uh, they played really well, despite giving up 21 goals to a very potent windshield offense. They played really, really well, and they got turns when they needed to. And obviously, that started with Dalton Smith and Nate Goff combining for five blocks. But those those offseason additions you were talking to, one name I really wanted to shout out was uh, Scott Hearn did a really nice mm-hmm. job defending Josh Klain uh, in the second half in particular, just being up in him, making it hard for Klain to get into reset positions that he like likes, uh, continually denying Klain from power position and allowing him to uncork when the wind was starting to settle towards the later stages of that game. Um, Klain, of course, still, I think, had his moments and had like a nice hammer at one point in the second half and definitely found a little bit of mojo. But Hearn in general, I think, was really surprising for me in what he was able to do for them uh, Similar with Jace Brunner, um, Jason Valley, you know, John Jones. Like there, there was a lot of team play defense from the union, and you could see that they were communicating well, that they were that they were a defensive unit as a whole. You know, obviously they have again Goff and Dalton, the top of it, but the other five guys on that team played just as well in their roles, I thought, on Saturday night. Like they did a really good job yeah. of disconnecting what Minnesota likes to do. Winchell had their looks. Quinn Snyder still looked fantastic in his return to the Winchell after not playing with them since 2019. Um, but it it never felt like Minnesota was in control of what they were doing. They were talented and they got their looks and they they, you know, closed on some shots, but Chicago's defense just kind of disconnected the backfield and the upfield rhythm of Minnesota's offense all night long yeah it, it also just felt like you know when you compare the two offenses it felt like Chicago just was better 
equipped with more patient, more reliable throwers. And a lot of that, you know, Minnesota was missing Andrew Roy, Will Brandt, two key handlers who started the season as their two starting handlers last year. You know, big losses in the backfield. Uh, they were missing Nick Vogt on offense. So again, I think as their as their depth sort of emerges later in the season, all playing together, I think they'll they'll fare better in games like these. But again, you know, Chicago offense was missing Paul Arders, so that was like looking at this matchup, I was like, that is where I would expect Dalton Smith to fit in. Like, is that going to be a problem for Chicago? And it really wasn't. So I, you know, again, the Chicago depth, I think is very underrated. And we saw a lot of it this past weekend. Before we get too further, too much further into breaking this game down, I think we should jump over to our interview again with uh, Chicago's head coach, Dave Woods. And then we'll come back from that and get a little deeper into the week two game of the week. Don't go anywhere. And we welcome to the podcast today the head coach of the 2-0 Chicago Union, having gotten their second win on Saturday in Minnesota in a very impressive 24-21 win over the windchill. Dave Woods, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk with you guys. So that was a pretty big win on the road in Minnesota. And I think there was a little bit of skepticism going into that environment with them having all the new additions, you guys being absent a couple of your playmakers and Artemakis and Paul Arters. And yet you guys just went out there and kind of out-executed the Minnesota windchill for four straight quarters, uh, coming up with a big kind of convincing three-goal win what do you guys see as your team strengths after these first two games of the season? And what are you guys kind of rallying around as a team identity this season in 2022? Well, I think, first of all, I should probably thank you guys. Uh, given the lack of hype that you were given the Chicago Union going into the preseason, Um <laughs> actually kind of galvanized our team a little bit. So um, nice, nice. That, <laughs> that's something that I'm happy to report. We're trying to rub in your faces a little bit. Uh, we honestly, because of this, we are, even though we are the reigning central division champions, we are adopting an underdog mentality largely because of the, not the bad press, but the 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 lack of hope uh, that you guys are that everybody is showing the Chicago Union. So um, that's 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 probably what I would answer is what we're rallying behind. So thanks to you guys. Uh, <clears throat> and in terms of the the strengths that I saw from the team this weekend, I think it was that we we displayed a high level of mental strength as a team which I was really happy to see. Um, Minnesota has done a great job with their, um, their uh, home game experience. Uh, it's so fun to play there. And they, uh, they have got um, their VIP section that is centered right next to the away team sideline, which is <laughs> the both clever guy. and infuriating. <laughs> yes. And, I knew this to be true in 2019, but it was proven again this past weekend that the longer the game goes, 
And the more that that VIP section drinks, the uh, the chippier that they get towards our sideline. So I'm very happy with the mental focus and strength that the Chicago Union displayed on Saturday, uh, especially late in the game, which I think is where it, it showed the most. And kind of just to pick apart a little bit what you said earlier, Adam, I don't think that we did win four quarters. We definitely lost that first quarter. Uh, we were down 7-9, I believe, after the first quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, they they outplayed us for sure that first quarter. We came out um, after traveling up there uh, earlier that day, and we looked like we were not half asleep, but definitely like a half second behind where I think we should have been coming out of the gate. And Minnesota definitely took advantage of that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to say that, that that didn't continue throughout the game. We found our step and we did begin executing and we won the, the last three quarters of the game. What was the general offensive game plan coming into this game where you didn't have Paul Arters, who was obviously a significant piece of the offense last year and in the first game against Pittsburgh? Like missing a guy like that and Artemakis, was there any any concern about like filling that role offensively, or was it more about sort of restructuring the offense given the pieces that were active? I would say it's definitely it was more of the latter. Um, I'm I'm glad to say that uh, despite the talk from certain individuals, I do still consider the Chicago Union to be a pretty deep team. Uh, We've got a lot of guys that are talented on both sides of the disc. And so uh, we are able to kind of fill in to certain holes as they're needed. Um, Like we saw this past weekend, we brought Cal Tornabeni in on Mm -hmm. the O-line when he is typically one of our solid D-line players. And he filled into that role beautifully. He had a ton of goals. He had, oh my gosh. The layout layout was so nice layout of the game yeah oh baby. yeah uh honestly i thought he was going to have a concussion coming off the line i'm glad to say that he was just a little bit shaken up but when he stood up and looked like he couldn't see uh straight i was so nervous with him being on the sideline just outside of the goal line uh so glad to see that that was not the case he still found the reset and then we punched it in um but yeah, it wasn't so much we, we we it wasn't so much we were trying to find a replacement for Arters so much as it was fitting pieces in to make sure that we still had a, a very competitive O line with a, with complementary parts. I would say is uh, what we were looking for. Um, going back to our strengths that we displayed, I think that um, on Saturday it was a team win overall. Uh, that was something we talked about during the game that the entire team was playing well together uh which we've not had as many pre quality preseason reps as we would have had this time last season so it's been kind of difficult to see and say like what those complementary parts are and where they fit um but we had we had some contributions from some names that uh we don't usually get to hear a lot for instance Jerry Kelly uh, came in in his AUDL debut and he got a block on his very first point, And that was our first break of the game. So 
huge contribution from him. And then, uh, you know, uh, Zach Kiefer was another guy who made his debut and he was giving us a lot of good pressure in the downfield space. Um, and I talked about Cal uh, a second ago and then um, players like Kyle Rutledge, who we've been trying to kind of figure out where to fit him. And he's another player that, you know, he's got a lot of, he's, he's talented in a lot of different ways. And so he was a, a piece that we were able to fit in pretty seamlessly to the O-line and find success with him as a part of it. You talk about that depth component, and that was visible in your win on Saturday. You guys, I think, performed top-down a lot better than Minnesota. It felt like you guys were a lot more accustomed to their roles. You talk about that team win. In addition to uh, Sam Kaminsky kind of having a career night, you bring up Rutledge, Shanahan, Ross Barker had a couple of incredible goals, and obviously the new addition of Dalton Smith. Can you talk about that balance that you guys had sort of on both lineups where it felt like everyone was on the same page together? It's, it's something that we, we practice for sure. Um, uh, we do try to distribute uh, practice time and in game situations, you know, however we can. Um, yeah. Bringing Dalton in, uh, like I kind of said earlier, uh, we've struggled to find quality preseason reps and, um, due to just some different, uh, different things, uh, we weren't able to get very many preseason reps with Dalton at all. So him coming in and being able to seamlessly fit into our D line and then quarterback that, uh, counter attack was amazing. So, uh, I don't think we would have been as successful on our counterattacks without Dalton there um, this past weekend. So that was great that uh, he joined us and fit in as seamlessly as he did. Um, sorry, what were the other names that you asked about? I'm sorry. I'm looking at different things here. <laughs> no, it's okay. I listed a handful. I, I just feel like everyone kind of had a good game for you guys. It felt like you were very well prepared for that windy environment and Minnesota's very good defense it you know they ran a lot of set plays for you a lot of double teams and it felt like you guys handled those very ably Pavel Giannis able to pick up and immediately initiate the offense and everyone else around him just sort of fitting in naturally to their roles it felt very balanced and I was just I was just curious about like what your take is on like how Jack Shanahan fills into his role how Ross Barker sort of is still wide receiver one, but sort of diminishes in that kind of windy environment. Yet he's such a technically skilled player that he was able to still make a big difference for your guys' offense. It just, again, it felt like you were getting contributions up and down the roster on both lines. Yeah. um, Speaking to the windy conditions, I do think that that was something that probably played in our favor. Um, I don't know what kind of practices Minnesota has had. I know that they've had quite a few preseason practices, but I'm both uh, glad to say and kind of discouraged to say that all of our uh, preseason practices in Chicago were basically all in conditions very similar to what we faced on Saturday. So whereas Minnesota, if they were practicing indoors, you know, that could have been some chatter within the, you know, on the sideline, like, you know, we haven't played in these conditions yet, but let's just like, let's just execute. Whereas we 
had the privilege, I guess, of being able to say, hey, we have already played in these conditions many times, basically only these conditions. Uh, we had the game against Pittsburgh the weekend before um, in very similar conditions where it was very windy and gusty and, um, you know, difficult to to throw and play and catch in. Um, I think we saw some uncharacteristic drops from Minnesota, which played in our favor. Um, I think they had something like seven drops, which that's, you know, that's not something that you want to see from your line, but um, great when it's the other team, when, when we get to play against the drops, but you know, that was something that we got to work out already. And so when it came to those, sideline double team scenarios we had already gotten many reps in those situations so guys knew where to go i will say um, minnesota did look very prepared for a lot of our sets that we threw against them um so that was apparent it they they clearly did a lot of a lot of work on the back end preparing for us um i think maybe where we found our success is that we maybe just adjusted to the conditions a little bit better. Um, and again, we had those reps where we had the practice to adjust in those conditions. Um, but yeah, going back to Jack and Ross, um, you know, that those are two players that, like you said, are technically skilled in a lot of different aspects of the game. Um, and I think something that we are, that we did well last year and that we're hopefully going to continue and get better at this year is identifying what those key skills are that each player brings and figuring out how we can get the most out of those specific skills. Um, that's something we as an organization uh, preach and try to execute on as much as possible is teams find the most success when everybody is doing what they do best as well as they can. So it seemed like Chicago was exceptionally prepared for this Minnesota matchup on Saturday. Can you go through, Coach Woods, what you and assistant coach Sarah Nolik did to prepare for the wind chill? Yes. So let me talk about our assistant coach, Sarah Nolik, for a little bit. Coach G, as the team has affectionately dubbed her. Um, and let me just say the league should be looking out for Coach G in the future. Uh, she has a brilliant mind for the game and I was beyond excited one to have an assistant coach for one. This is the first season that I've had an assistant. And I think it's, it's something that we've realized is a need that we've had in the past and that we've been looking for. Um, but due to some, uh, conditions and what have you, we just weren't able to find something that would pan out. And then. Um, some of the players actually uh, suggested that we talk to Sarah Nolek and see if she is would be interested in coming on. And we met with her. We heard a little bit about her experience and how she thinks about the game. And we brought her on and she has been so helpful and uh, is, lar is a large, another large part of our success that we saw this past weekend. Uh, she and I, we see the game differently. Um, she thinks about the game differently. So we, we have found that we, we complement each other very well um, in terms of, again, the different things that we're good at and what we want to do best um, for the team. 
So uh, in my in speaking with Evan before the game on Saturday, I I kind of dubbed that uh, Sarah Nolek is the brains of the team and I take care of the heart. So um, I think that's exactly the uh, that that's exactly what went into preparing um, for Saturday, and that's honestly kind of the roles that we played throughout the game on Saturday too. Uh, she identified some weaknesses that she saw in the the Minnesota um, warmups that we tried to take advantage of. Um, and then also some things that they likely would try to press us on and identifying ways to combat those things. So uh, she was instrumental in our win on Saturday and uh, she had the, those great timeout calls. There were a few that, um, you know, she, she was part of the reason why we got some of our breaks and it was a great, we complimented each other so well. We said that at one point on the sideline, like, hey, that, that was kind of fun, right? Was that a good time? We should keep doing this. So I cannot speak more highly of Coach Sarah Nolik, Coach G, and I'm excited for the rest of the season working with her. So that's a great segue. I want to come back to Dalton Smith. And like you said, there there was not a ton of opportunities in the preseason to really integrate him and, and see how he fit in with the rest of the guys on the team, whether on offense or defense. But what what was your general approach? Like taking a guy like that who has so much experience on both sides of the disc, like we saw it, we saw him look so good on that counterattack, but like it was his offensive ability that shined on a lot of those throws. Like he had a huge upwind huck. He had that that bullet of a hammer out of the double team on the sideline. Like there's so much offensive ability there, but how do you go and be like, I want to put this guy on D-line. I'm uh, just curious what went into the decision of putting Dalton Smith where he ended up. By the way, I I love the decision. I I think before the game, I was like, I was like, no, no Paul Arters, like maybe Dalton Smith could fill that role on offense, but like D-line quarterback Dalton is so fun to watch. And when he's getting layout blocks too. <laughs> and when he's getting, yeah, it's just icing on the cake. That was icing on the cake. If I'm being honest. Yeah, that was, that was pretty great. Uh, Well, in terms of the decision, I think you kind of already spoke to it. The fact that we didn't have the opportunity to get a lot of preseason reps with him. uh, It it just is easier as a coach. And um, when you're going through your lines to slot players in on D line, where you're hoping that they get a D, but if the offensive chemistry is not quite there, um, you know, you're hopeful that if a turnover does happen, that your D line can get the disc back and you can try it again, um, which Dalton helped us do. Uh, and so that was the main part of the decision. And we had commu- we had communicated that to Dalton before the game. Um, you know, you're likely going because you're a travel player. Um, you're not going to get a lot of practice reps with the team. And at least initially, we see you being on the D line and quarterbacking the counterattack. And that's something that he flat out said, like, yeah, I've been doing that for like the last five seasons. So that's something I'm perfectly comfortable with. And it was like, great, good talk. Uh, so that's not to say that that won't change as we do get more reps. You know, we do have the luxury of him having a season uh, playing with the Chicago, a lot of the Chicago club players last year. So he does have some pre-established chemistry. 
Um, but when it comes to the AUDL season, that's where we saw the best fit for him at this time. Cool. I'm into it. I like it. Going, going back to our failure to address your team's depth coming into this season, it's all of a sudden very apparent you're rich in throwers. I mean, you have Pavel Giannis, who I think showed a great ability to adapt to the circumstances as you were talking about on uh, Saturday. But now you have Dalton Smith in the lineup. Paul Arders wasn't playing on Saturday, but you can put him in. Kyle Rutledge. Ross Barker's a good thrower. Jack Shanahan might have one of the most underrated flicks in the league right now. Do you... What do you do when you have that much throwing potential as a coach, and how do you kind of distribute the touches between your team? So I would say it's not we don't we don't game plan in terms of distributing touches. Sure. Going back to what I said before, it's more identifying ways that we can get the players who we want in those situations into those situations. So a player like Jack who does have some silky throws, uh, like you said, maybe one of the most underrated in the league. Um, how can we get get into a position where he's coming under and looking deep uh, to some of those other receivers that we have who are phenomenal receivers? Uh, so what can we do to make that situation happen where we are, again, taking advantage of the skills of our players uh, to do what they do best? Um, and so that's more, that's more our approach to it. Um, and I know I've heard you guys talk about, uh, some of Pavel's social media antics that are, uh, we're going to be a bunch of shooters and bucket getters. I think in so many words, that's, that's his explanation of what I just said. (laughs) I, I did see it, you know, like you guys were shooters when it was appropriate. Daniel mentioned Dalton taking an upwind shot at one point on your D-line and getting you guys into an attacking position. Out of those double teams, Pavel and Dalton were both taking kind of quote-unquote shots. A couple of Ross's goals were Shanahan airing out like a back corner throw to him. It did still feel like you guys had that quote-unquote shooter mentality, but then you look at the team conversion stats and you guys were 80% on red zone opportunities in the game. I think almost 20% better than Minnesota, or sorry, 10% better than Minnesota's conversion rate. And it reminded me that sure, you guys might talk about being shooters, but the framework from last season's, you know, historically best efficient offense is still very much there. Like you guys still very much execute in that kind of small ball, get the disc to where it needs to go spread it out as much as possible mentality. And that's why you saw, I think, Kaminsky have such a good game and your guys' ability, like you say, to get people to disc where they like it. It just felt like you guys were doing that so consistently against Minnesota. Yes. While shooters and bucket getters might seem like we're going out there trying to make some highlight plays, which we are, uh, It, I, I want to believe that Pavel is saying in so many words, let's still be efficient, but... Um, our, our, the way that we think about offense on the union is we want the throwers with the throws throwing it. We want the receivers with the speed in the hands and the, the air ability. We want them catching. So that is what we are, I'm happy to say, still practicing. And uh, something that, yeah, it, it helped us find success this past weekend. Um, you have the 80% 
uh, conversion in the red zone, despite the windy conditions is something that's definitely our team should be proud of. Um, and I think to your point, it does speak to the depth that we have um, in the throwing positions on the field. Uh, I think that's something that was apparent when we were warming up is that we, we had most of our, most of our throwers looked pretty confident or at least competent throwing up wind. Um, whereas, you know, watching some of, um, Minnesota's warm warmups before the game, it did look like they were struggling with a little more. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, one of the adjustments that we made leading up to the opening poll was let's try to exploit this, these windy conditions as much as possible. Um, and I think that did play a large benefit to us this past weekend. I'm not so foolish to think that the Minnesota team that we saw this past weekend is going to be the same one that we see next weekend or that our next matchup. Um, and I think that with them bringing back into their lineup players like Nick Vote and A-Roy, uh, their offense is going to look much different. And I think if they would have had those players this weekend, we probably would have struggled more um, and the scores might've been reversed in in full transparency. But um Fortunately, when it came down to this matchup in these conditions this past weekend, uh, we were able to take better advantage of the skills that we had and the the conditions that were presented to us. It's it's a long ways away from championship weekend. But my last question, if Chicago goes on to make the playoffs, win their playoff games, make it back to championship weekend, is there any one team in another division that you'd be most excited to play? I mean, who wouldn't love another Carolina-Chicago matchup? Am I right? Um, You're right. I, I thought we were pretty well-matched last season. I'd be interested to see us uh, have another go at it. Um, but I'm really excited for the hype that's now surrounding some of the West Division teams uh Colorado and Salt Lake um it seems like they are uh so, like they're doing some some fun things out there so I still need to take a better look at some game film uh with them but we'll leave that for later in the season we'll see as things continue to shake out um I'm glad to say that we now have a few weeks off the Chicago Union in our in our season so we will have a few weeks to uh, lick our wounds a little bit that we have accumulated in these first two, two games. Uh, And uh, not wounds Not you know, everybody gets little bumps and bruises Uh, and we'll get to watch some of these other central division teams and see what other schemes they might be throwing and saving for us the next time we match up. Yeah, you guys don't play again until June 4th at Detroit. Nearly a month Ugh. off. A lot of time so to experiment. Time. <laughs> Thank goodness, because like I said, we have not <laughs> had enough preseason practice reps. So this is we're going to be deeming this our second preseason. <laughs> Love well, it. right on. I hope the May weather is just a little bit wetter than what you had to endure during the preseason and on Saturday night as well in Minnesota. But a uh, huge win for you guys. Thank you so much, Coach Woods, for joining us today. Um, just a pleasure to have you on. 
Thank you for having me. And I'll be excited to talk with you guys another, another time later in the season. Awesome. Let's do Thanks, it. Thanks, Coach. Thanks, Coach. Let's do it. Dave Woods has to be one of the nicer clubhouse leaders and coaches in the league. I I think every time I talk with him, I just walk away smiling for no reason in particular. And it's the same even uh, in the interview with him. You know, he's he's kind of riding us over the speed bumps, so to speak, with, you know, some of the criticisms we've had against his team heading into the season. And and I couldn't help but just kind of giggle throughout the whole thing. Yeah, it was, he's a great time. I, I love Coach Woods. And and really what he's put together in Chicago, like thinking about this culture change that has sort of happened over the past several seasons. You know, his first year as head coach was 2019 when Chicago finally made it back to the playoffs after so many years missing the playoffs. Um, and really since then, you know, with the whole Chicago Union rebrand, like it, it really feels like he has reinvented this team, so to speak. I wanted to hit on another part that he brought up in our interview, and that's the addition of assistant coach Sarah Nolik this season. And I think Mm -hmm. the visible difference she had on the union in their win uh, on Saturday night, there was just, there was so much attention to detail about how they were responding to Minnesota's game plan as, as Woods even pointed out. Minnesota came in prepared. They knew what Chicago likes to run. They were prepared to combat it. And it felt like the union won up them in their adjustments to that. And I think hearing Woods and just seeing some of the subtle differences in how they execute, and especially in-game, how they respond to the opposition's adjustments, it it definitely reveals that Nolik is having a pretty big effect on this union team. I think he even didn't he even point out that like she saw something from the wind chill in warmups and like yeah. noted some adjustments, you know, like just probably a half hour before the game uh, on the fly adjustments. I think that's that's just such an important piece of being a coach in today's AUDL. And then we're seeing more and more of it of, you know, not maybe not so much pregame adjustments, but in-game adjustments. And, and it feels like no like is, is very central to that part of Chicago's coaching staff. Yeah. And I just thought they were, all of their set pieces just looked right to me. Even if they sometimes resulted in a turnover, Chicago's ability to just sort of, no pun intended, weather the wind and the double teams (laughs) that Minnesota just kept roller pulling at them again and again and again and again and again with, you know, a lot of teams get bored with that. A lot of teams in the <laughs> right. get really bored when you start just grinding out double team uh, traps along a sideline and making them throw against the wind. They'll try and take their shots. And it really felt like the union were disciplined. Now, they weren't without their mistakes. You know, they had 20 turnovers. Pavel Giannis finished with seven throwaways, which I think might tie like a career high for him. But you, you dig a little past the top level numbers and the inefficiency in this game. I mean, he still finished with five assists, two goals, and 534 yards of total offense, outpacing uh, everyone in this game. And he had 10 hockey assists to show you how involved 
he was in Chicago's offense throughout the night, you know, like, and we, and we don't normally, we don't normally quote hockey assists, but I, I do want to draw attention to that number. Like 10 is ridiculous for a game. It's an so, yeah, it's number. It's like a, <laughs> two deviations little... above what you normally see. Like four, right, right. Barker so... finished with four and that's a very solid number and kind of like an indicator that yes, he's very involved around the goal line, whether he's receiving or throwing, but 10, yeah. go, go ahead. No, 10, I, right. I think the, the hockey assist stat usually, I think, correlates a lot to throwing yards and completions and just, you know, it's another way to get a player's, a sense of a player's role in the offense and how central they are. But when it's a number as high as 10, I think it just, it it does a bit more to balance out when you look at those six throw, six or seven throwaways, whatever it was. Uh, and you look at that, 10 hockey assists with the throwing yards numbers. I, th- I think there is little doubt of how central Pavel was to this win. And it's it just comes down to his throwing ability. And when there's a lot of wind, there's extra pressure on those throwers to be, you know, extra efficient with their throws. And, and you look at Pavel's game and you also look at Dalton Smith, who did not have a throwaway. He, his one incompletion came on a drop. So... The fact that you can get that production out of your top two quarterbacks on offense and on the D line, that I, that felt like the biggest difference maker uh, in the game to me it was just the the elevated throwing talent of Chicago compared to Minnesota. Like Abe Coffin, fantastic thrower, but he was struggling a bit with those double team traps specifically. I think he had at least maybe three throwaways that came on those double teams, just like. Slightly too floaty hammers or scubers. You want the crazy number uh, stat of the night? Abe Coffin finished yeah. zero assists in his debut. In the <laughs> that, Windchill. that is nuts. He did lead the team in yardage. Yeah. But yeah, no, he was involved no all night. But credit right. to Chicago again. They held ostensibly Minnesota's best thrower on the night to zero assists. Yeah. Abe Coffin also led the team in points played with 28. So I, I'm excited to see his continued involvement in the offense and and on the D. He played eight D points too, but yeah, obviously a, an extremely good player. I think he had like I would say he had a solid debut, but right, Chicago did a pretty good job of limiting him, which I think says a lot about their defense. It felt like Minnesota was still experimenting a lot with their lines. As you point out, Coffin playing eight points on defense. Uh, Cole Jurek played six points on defense and was trying to get some Mm -hmm. good matchups at times. Uh, Rocco Linehan, too, platooning a little bit on D-line. Do you think it favors either team in their kind of personnel decisions where Chicago seems much more established in their roles? while Minnesota has so much more of a room to develop, do you, do you have a sense of which one you favor as far as later in the season? Like, do you think Chicago's stability now will carry it forward a little better than Minnesota's maybe ability to reach a higher ceiling? Yeah, that's tough. I feel like I generally like the approach of experimentation, especially when you have a team like Minnesota that has, added a lot of significant pieces that they didn't have last season but it's hard to argue with the results at this point I mean Chicago does feel very secure in guys knowing their roles and you know Jeff Weiss played seven D points which I I love the concept of him playing a bit of defense in addition to offense because he's 
another big defender. He had uh, three blocks against Minnesota. He is going to be a force whenever he's on the field, whether it's on the, in the deep space on offense or defense. But I don't know. Later in the season, like I said, I think Minnesota is going to figure stuff out. But you look at you look at their roster and you saw that they were missing some key guys this week. Like, it, I guess, do the absences continue? Is there a point where they're at absolute full strength? And then when they are at absolute full strength, is that even more? Does that cause more tinkering with the lineups? Because, you know, like you have a guy like Rami Paust who slots into the O-line when certain other throwers aren't there, but maybe you have to move them over the defense. So I don't know. I could kind of see it going either way with Minnesota. Uh, to answer your question, I guess I would say right now, I I like Chicago's approach a little better and I feel a little bit more confident in them. But again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything against Minnesota at this point. I just kind of have to wait and see how everything develops hedge perhaps um oh a total hedge yes. <laughs> you hedge? hedge master yeah you are we should get you some like clippers or something little sun hat like a landscaper yeah. um something like that <laughs> uh yeah i i agree with you i was so impressed with chicago i will say and you mentioned it earlier the absence of andrew roy was very apparent from this minnesota lineup and i think yeah. it gets to your sort of point about yeah they're experimenting now and that's kind of good and they're seeing where all this talent fits in but like you're also saying I worry about that that never stops that it's always right in process it's like processing where Chicago you know they made it look so easy for Dalton Smith to do what he did on D-line and you said on AUDL Weekly I thought he looked better in that role then the the pieces that formed the great D-line counterattack for Chicago last year. Like I was just Agreed. Yeah. So impressed with their ability to anchor from him and for Goff to kind of even fill in a little bit and become that ancillary piece and just let Dalton do his thing but fill in when he needs to. Like everything just fell into place for the Union and to do that in week 2 in a central division that's I think very very much in an embryo stage right now looking around the rest of the division <laughs> it, it bodes yeah. very well for the defending chance and it gets to another point which is that they played with a lot of pride on saturday and i think that mm-hmm. was a little new for the union i think and you heard that from woods right like last year they were coming into the season expected to be a championship weekend team and possibly go undefeated in the division but they had never really been to that level before, right? Like mm-hmm. years ago in 2013, this franchise made a championship weekend appearance, but it has gone through many, many it's a very different phases team. since then. And so for yeah. last year's union team to kind of have to suddenly be the division leaders, you know, heading into the season and perform that way from game one, it felt like they were always learning to become prideful about their winning it felt like, you know, like they were putting on a suit almost a little too large for them. Whereas on Saturday, it mm-hmm. felt like they owned it. Like they very much played with a confidence of, yes, we went to championship weekend last year. Yes, you are a good team. Yes, there's a ton of win. So what? Like we're going to play our game. We're going to make adjustments <laughs> right. and we're going to come out with the W. Like that was so impressive to me for a union team that I had a good deal of questions about heading into the season. And I don't know if I have so many of them right now. 
Yeah, and and like Coach Woods was telling us, um, I just want to say you're welcome to the Chicago <laughs> Union because Adam and I clearly uh, lit a bit of a fire under the team this year. Yeah, I mean, it really is though, such a big difference compared to last season where, yeah, just going from the team that was the presumed favorites and like by a long shot, like when they announced all their signings before the 2021 season, it was like, oh, Chicago's got this. No team's going to touch them. Yeah, Minnesota's going to be good. But uh, yeah, this year, very different story. But I I love the team kind of rallying behind that underdog mentality going forward. And they look loose. You know, they play they play yeah, yeah. In, in ways that are very obviously coached in practice. But they, they feel much looser than last iteration of the union. Last year's iteration, I yeah. should say. I think I think even like Nate Goff is sort of finding his groove as like on offense on the D line. Like he was back handling the disc a bit. Uh, I love his like when he gets the disc and especially as the stall count rises, he has this really nice step out inside flick break. You know because he covers so much ground, so he's just got this yeah. like mega stride that can reach around anyone. Like I don't know, I I love that asset that the Chicago D line offense has. Um, just complimenting whatever Dalton Smith brings to the table each game. Yeah, man. Nate Goff is Godzilla. They they called a foul <laughs> on him at one point because he basically jumped too high up and a Minnesota player backpedaled into him and Nate Goff like came down. Oh, that was when he, yeah. It like looked like Goff jumped over the guy but also got taken out. Yeah, and they uh, tried to call a foul yeah. on him, which is very odd. But anyways, <laughs> um, very impressive week two performance from Chicago, but we should actually move West and talk about uh, a, the third expansion team's debut from this past week in the Colorado summits. They go into Seattle and into Portland and come away with W's in both. Um, the Seattle game, it definitely looked like they were an expansion team getting their feet underneath of them, but going mm-hmm. into Portland the next day and with a travel roster, just being also all too able to join a shootout with a very, very talented and high octane nitro offense and coming away with the wind and one of the most chaotic finishes I think I've seen in a regular season game in the past couple of years. Uh, it was an impressive weekend for the summit. I, I, they're littered with talent everywhere. You know, the, yep. the young guys that are coming out of the University of Colorado that were making all their AUDL debuts, like Quinn Finer and Alex Aikens and Thomas Brewster and Daniel Brunker. Those dudes were phenomenal in fill roles. And then the AUDL veterans, kind of the all AUDL caliber players that they've announced during the offseason, the Dave Wiseman's, Jay Fruits, and I think most notably from this past weekend, John Nethercutt. Um, they all filled their roles basically to perfection. And while I know you were excited to see Frude as kind of a playmaker role in the Summit offense, I very much enjoyed uh, kind of quarterback, almost anchor of the offense. Nether cuts the shooter, but Frude and Jackson sort of work some of the possession game. And then yeah. should Colorado ever turn the disc, you get A1 Frude ready to like swipe a disc out of the air at head height um, at a moment's <laughs> notice. Like I, I really liked his, yeah. his style in this summit attack on offense, but yeah. I was really impressed yeah, in it general wasn't... with Colorado's O-line by the end of the weekend. 
Right, right. Fru didn't have a flashy offensive weekend, which was fine. Yeah, like he didn't really need to. I think Finer and Alex Atkins are going to score a lot of goals, uh, both throwing and receiving this season. And yeah, like you said, Fruit on defense, I think, is such an asset after any Colorado turnover. Like he had that one layout block against the Cascades uh, on an in-cut, just a, a classic, you know, just defender beating their matchup to the disc. And yeah, I, th- I thought Matt Jackson also did a really nice job handling in the backfield alongside Nethercut, just another AUDL vet back there that knows how to distribute the disc. He didn't finish with the best numbers. Like he only completed, I think, yeah, let's see, 91% of his throws. But I don't know. It, it felt like a pretty cohesive unit. Obviously, with Nethercut as that glue, just I, I don't know if there's a better, like, more secure quarterback you could have right now in in his ability to like make any throw on the field and just know how to get an offense moving the way John Nethercut does. Um, I I don't know. I feel like I'm blown away by him every time I watch him play. It's like this is just one of the best throwers in the world, and there's nothing defenses can really do about it. When Portland wasn't really able to pull away from a Colorado team playing their second game in as many days in the second half, kind of, kind of as Portland did last weekend against Seattle, even though Seattle, it was their debut as well, Portland just smoked them in the second half. I kind of thought heading <laughs> yeah. into Sunday that might happen to Colorado. With a, like As athletic as Colorado is, there's I, I still have an idea in my head, and maybe Salt Lake just burst through this wall and I should never have it again, but that teams still have a little bit of an adjustment period, especially playing a road back-to-back in the AUDL. Colorado mm-hmm. didn't have that, and it felt like when Portland couldn't put them away and Nethercut's just back there in the pocket just shooting rockets everywhere, it was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> this is kind of the Summit's game to lose. Leandro Marks is going off. Raffi Hayes is doing his thing from time to time. Eli Friedman looks like the former Callahan winner and playmaker that he was for Los Angeles. He, he plays phenomenal. Yeah. Daniel Lee is a highlight monster and one of my favorite first-year debut players. Um, They're all doing their thing, but with the Summit and just that that presence of, like, fruit and nethercut just coming at you drive after drive after drive and, you know, Finer and Atkins and Brewster and Brunker, who were just doing all of the dirty work in the margins, just always in motion. I thought that Mm -hmm. that kind of quartet of cutters that the Summit had were just – really phenomenal in their debuts um it it i don't know that it, it just sort of felt like as the game progressed yeah it just the sum it was the summits to lose as as well as portland was playing and i wanted to get to the other side of the ball so to speak for the summit with their d-line because while it was giving up points on sunday and while it was sort of adjusting to certain um i think offensive attacks once it would get a turn I was really impressed with their opening weekend ability to pressure and just make plays on the disc. Matthew Ad, mm-hmm. in addition to making that uh, amazing Sports Center goal, he was, yeah, I think, despite Marx's productivity, really good at just sort of being on his hip all game on Sunday and pressuring him around. Alex Tatum was really impressive. Cody Spicer, especially in the second half, as a Cody Spicer defender, looked great. He yeah. was so good for them. 
Um, he was I, on, I think he was on Declan Miller for a lot of that Seattle game. And I, I loved watching that matchup. Like he is really good at dictating with his body, just defensive positioning and, and forcing the cutter to do what he doesn't want to do. Um, yeah, I, I think they, I, right. It's just another lineup of these really solid athletes that, that have a ton of potential. One, you can see them learning the bigger field in real time. Mm-hmm. Like you could kind of see them figuring out a little bit more how to leverage their athleticism. Seth Ferris made a couple of really nice step through blocks against Portland. Um, it, it feels like if this team starts to get a little bit of defensive momentum that can catch up to their offenses already like high ceiling that they might be the favorite to win the division like that's how they looked this past weekend for as much as they were still obviously developing and everything you could see the talent you could see how it was also just gaining confidence as they won one game after another for sure for and, sure. and i i Oh, I, I know how, how good Salt Lake looked in their opening weekend, and it felt like they just looked kind of at their peak potential right off the bat. It feels like this Colorado team might just get better slowly as the season goes on, because, you know, like you said, there were some sort of expansion team adjustment moments uh, throughout the weekend, and, you know, they didn't start off as fast as Salt Lake did last weekend. But it, it really is a team that is just a ton of young talent top to bottom but then these AUDL vets are really paving the way for the rest of the guys to succeed too I think it was kind of giving like giving a monkey a stick of dynamite to give this team a 2-0 start like the last thing (laughs) that all these young playmakers needed was more confidence heading into the pick of their schedule and I feel like Portland for as good as they are, they sort of initiated this momentum for a Colorado team that kind of needed to be like stopped at the point of attack. Otherwise, like we're saying, it just there's the pieces here where it starts to feel like a championship weekend team because of the presence of a Jay Fruit, a former MVP, another cut, right. uh, you know, a kind of just field general and Dave Wiseman, who is sort of always around the disc and always sort of doing things that the summit needed at various times, a huge thrower mm-hmm. should they need it. But obviously they have throwers everywhere in this team. I don't know. I, <laughs> they I do. Like what is it? I, I will say Salt Lake's preparedness and coaching and everything else is a step above the other expansion teams. And that was very apparent yeah. in the chaos at the end of the first overtime in Colorado and Portland, where there was three plus minutes of game clock. Both teams had a timeout. It was tied. And the clock just wound down to zeros for sudden death. There were nine (laughs) turnovers in between. Neither team used a timeout. A downpour started. And I think a hellmouth opened up underneath of the field or something. But it was just like, it, it was the most like backyard first year at summer camp sort of there are no <laughs> rules and boundaries society doesn't exist yeah. sort of level of ultimate it, it was pure chaos and I couldn't imagine Salt Lake having a moment like that uh, in week one right it they was so fragmented right. in their approaches <laughs> they looked so polished right but I, I don't know it's kind of scary to me thinking that even though Colorado didn't look so polished it, it right. like gives me hope that they will get better throughout the season like even nethercut only completed 91.7 percent 
on the weekend. You know, most of their O-line was below 95% completion percentage. Like if this team just kind of dials back the turnovers a little bit and, and really hits their stride later in the season, I, I guess the the growth for them is a little more, it's a little more clear for me to see rather than Salt Lake who seemed to just get it right off the bat. Like, I don't know. And maybe, maybe they are at a point. Salt Lake is where that is, you know, at the level where they can win this division. But the idea of a, a Nethercut, Frude, Jackson led summit offense, you know, not even playing their best ultimate and still winning two games of a doubleheader road trip. Remember go- coming into the season, we were like, is any team in the West going to win a doubleheader road trip? Well, both expansion teams have done it already. And, and the fact that they can do that to, right off the bat. Portland can still yeah. make it three for three and travel weekends for the expansion <laughs> teams and going undefeated. Right. When is when is Portland's? I got to look because that's obviously a, a thing to circle on the calendar. Let's yeah. see. As you're their, saying, their first one is June 10th, June 11th. Portland does the SoCal road trip in LA and then in San Diego. Shred beat the summit in almost every team statistical category after their week one performance compared to summits to a week two performance. But like you're mm-hmm. saying, it, it just feels like then how much higher can Salt Lake go? Like if they're performing right, at that right. level, if they beat San Diego out of the gate, then how do you keep self-motivating beyond that? Whereas the summit, I, I don't know. I Having listened to Joe Merrill and Jordan Kerr last year and just their fixation to d- detail with the Salt Lake team. Yeah, no, Salt Lake still not feels like we might be sure. seeing only the beginning of them too. Yeah. You know? no, they right. made execution I, I am there. curious. What I, switching gears a bit here, I want to come back to to Portland and their home games. What is it about that that home stadium that feels like every game is gonna be a shootout? Is it is it the lack of Portland defense? Is it the fact that the field looks so nice? I almost think of it as <laughs> because it's like such nice turf or, or short grass, whatever it is. It's like it feels field. almost like an indoor, like fast paced environment. Is that just Portland's play style, do you think, that's that's leading to these high-scoring games? I feel like all year we're going to see games at least get to the mid-20s in that stadium. It's that crisp p- Pacific Northwest air. I don't know. I Yeah, I, I agree. Don't know it either. feels like Coors Field and you know the MLB <laughs> or something, like where a lot of home runs happen, where there's just going to yeah, be a lot yeah. of hucks and like 25 to 22 scores at the Nitro <laughs> home facilities. Providence Park in portland yeah um no i i'm so excited for the west the west is gonna be insane the rest of the way uh salt lake has their home opener this friday they host seattle it'll be great to see salt lake after getting kind of a week away to make first time adjustments after they go two and oh excuse me yeah um, i don't know like San Diego, of course, they went to Oakland this past weekend and eked out a very arduous 18-16 to 16 <laughs> win on the road to yeah. get to one and one on the season. And it just looks like the Growlers are working through stuff, for lack of a better way to put it. There's not a singular thing you can identify with San Diego and why they're a little, I think, tense coming out of the gate in 2022, but... They just mm-hmm. don't look to be playing where they were in 2021, and they don't quite look to be where these expansion teams are right now, to be frank. You know, 
for as yeah. much as Portland lost the game on Sunday, they brought it to sudden death. We could be talking about 2-0 Portland instead very easily had Cody Spicer not getting that upline block on the goal line, right. you know? Um, yeah, do, I will say with San Diego, though, doesn't it kind of seem like they they do this? Like like last year, yeah. I feel like they started yeah. off really slow. They, they, they dropped an early game to LA. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I don't know. I, it feels like they're they're almost cemented as a team that is bound to get better and just click more throughout the season. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with it. It's hard from a, or far from a convincing win over Oakland where, you know, I, I'm still not convinced Oakland and Seattle are just going to be these like pushover matchups in the way. I like West is my favorite division just because I feel like even the bottom of the division can easily play with the top and with how much parity I expect at the top of the division. I, I just think every single West division game is going to be worth watching this season. A lot of quicksand, a lot of trap games out there for sure. Especially, yeah. I think uh, any team now in the coming weeks sort of creates any gap in the standings towards the top. They're just going to become an instant target, I feel like, for everyone. Right. And I'm really, really yeah. excited for that. Um, and and we've now we've now seen that home field advantage doesn't seem to matter that much. Like it's means, possible teams can sweep these road doubleheaders. Means Jack. Means nothing. Yeah. Nada. Uh, we were totally wrong there. Uh, let's eat some crow about <laughs> yeah. it. Let's, uh, let's take a quick flight cross country and talk about Boston's Canadian back-to-back road doubleheader uh, at Ottawa Ooh. last Friday night and then at Montreal. Um, Outlaws getting the big home opener win against Boston in not the most precise game ever, but a wildly entertaining, I think, uh, Friday night feature on AUDL.TV. Um, again, Outlaws just kind of similar to the Union against Minnesota. They did what they needed to do. I thought they adapted to the game better than what Boston did on Friday night, and they came mm-hmm. away with the win. Um, they're throwing backfield of Jeff Bevan and... Nick Boucher were great once again. They combined for almost 900 yards together, a handful of assists, over 100 completions together, or near 100 completions together. Um, There's such a good anchor for this team and showed that even when things get a little sloppy, their ability to put pressure on opposing defenses in deep space makes the Outlaws competitive in most games. Even when things fall apart, they can still just start taking shots to Alec Arsenault or David Cholich. And those are pretty darn good options downfield. Yeah. Cholich was a a menace in the first half. At least he scored four goals uh, out of the first, like, I don't know, 10 for Ottawa. So yeah, they, they have a lot of fun pieces. I, I give the outlaws more credit than, than I have in the past. I think last year, you know, they showed, potential to at least play with the top of Canada they you know they split games against Montreal they did go two and two against Montreal they were the only Canadian team because Toronto did not beat Montreal uh to win games against them and and it just shows you the the gap between Ottawa and Montreal and now we're seeing this gap between Ottawa Boston Montreal like it's not it's not very wide or at least it, it doesn't seem to be and of course Boston didn't have their top roster they they had far from their top roster they only brought 17 guys to Ottawa and I they might have added a couple more for the Montreal game but they they were shorthanded 
it was it was cool to see you know finally where a U.S. team compares to can or more so where the Canada teams compared to the U.S. because they were off doing their own thing last season. It was good to finally get sort of a test and. I was impressed, you know, again, like you said, it was not the cleanest game, but Ottawa has enough pieces where, I don't know, I, you know, I don't think they're going to push New York or DC anytime soon, but it kind of feels pretty open for that three seed in the East division at this point. I mean, Boston, they're, they're going to have to be like really polished from this point forward, like dropping two games early neither of which were to New York or DC. Like if they lose to New York and DC uh, in those four matchups they have, that's at best a six and six season at this point for Boston. Of course, far from a given them losing those games, but I don't know. They've just kind of dug themselves this early hole, whereas Ottawa and Montreal, they're one and O and two and O respectively. So it's going to be tight. It's going to be tighter in the East than I would have thought coming into the season where I was, I was just higher on Boston, and I, I don't know. I was a little disappointed by their performance this week. But again, not full-strength roster. It is hard to read into it too much as far as their standings go. We we talked in the preview episode last Thursday about how we sort of expected them to drop it in Montreal, that Montreal is going to come out and get a W in their home opener. And... We said that we were more so trying to gauge that game as far as how Boston responded to the environment. And while they, they put up a little bit of a fight, I, I just didn't come away very impressed with how they executed in Canada this past weekend. And I know they were missing major, major, major pieces in especially Tanner Johnson and Orion Cable on that offense. But it felt like they're missing their two biggest receivers and they were still just boosting it a lot and sort of taking these <laughs> right. downfield shots where it's like, yeah, that would make total sense if it's Orion Cable just going up and roofing people. But where's the like developing offense? Like you you still have Cole Davis Brand and Ben Sidok. Like where's, where's just letting them mm-hmm. run dominator sets and letting them find like an open Willie Stewart to shoot occasionally? It just... I don't know, particularly right. in the Ottawa game on Friday, it they were just wide open with their huck looks. I I would need to go back and look at the stats in particular, but <laughs> I've I've got them pulled up. Boston yeah. attempted nineteen hucks against Ottawa. They it's only just... completed eleven of them. Ottawa, on the other hand, and and Jeff Bevan is like the perfect example of this. Like they they are so good at taking opportune hucks. Even Boucher wasn't just pulling the trigger freely all game. Like he was choosy. I don't think he threw a huck until like maybe late in the first half, but they completed eight of nine hucks on the day. And yeah, for Boston, for that to be Boston's offensive identity, even when they're missing Orion Cable and Tanner Johnson, it just clearly does not have uh, the same outcome as when you're throwing it up to those six, four plus big guys. They but, attempted. I mean, 20... I, I don't know. I, I will they say I, I was impressed the next with day. I was just gonna say like they they attempted forty hucks on the weekend without missing, <laughs> You're missing right. their two biggest receivers. It's just it's a game plan you look at and it's like okay you're gonna punch like your your whole strategy is to just throw uppercuts all weekend, but you come away with you know sub thirty five goals. Yeah, it's so hard. It's I I think a. I mean, Willie Stewart was attempting a lot of those hucks, and he's a guy that I I wasn't thinking I like too him. much about coming into the week. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I like I've come out 
come off of that weekend thinking a lot more highly of Willie Stewart and his fit in this off- offense. Like he is, you could argue, as central to it as Sadok and Davis Brand. Like he he has a really good all around skill set, whether it's offense or defense. Like he showed the ability to get blocks after turnovers. He was obviously the one throwing up a lot of those hucks. He he feels like a really nice piece for the backfield. But yeah, you just you have to think that when when they get their other downfield receivers back, it it takes a lot of the pressure off of Stewart to, you know, force these shots to guys that he probably shouldn't be forcing the disc to. Uh, it's it helps everyone when Cable and Johnson are back in the lineup, and I think Stewart will benefit a ton from that too. On the flip side for Montreal, they now improved to 2-0. and They're tied right now with New York atop the East Division, and they just have a nice inside lane for that third seed given Boston stumbles on yeah. the road this last weekend. And I didn't think it was a sterling win for the Royale, but they they showed no. enough again. They still very much look like the 2021 Royale. They like to take a lot of shots. They play up-tempo. Their D-line is sort of like Seattle and that it's a little bit of a faceless mob, and they love to just jailbreak off of turnovers. Um, and it, it works sometimes, and it can definitely put the opposing team on their heels, but it's it's not always the most efficient uh, D-line conversion rate in the league. But Montreal getting it done at home. Uh, their offense led by Jacob Brissett and Kevin Quinlan and Malik Azir samar and I think the emergent Nabil Shaush. Uh, is yeah. looking really, really great good. Shaush showed up, is starting to show off a throwing arsenal, and if that can match some of his big athleticism, that's a really nice add for a Royale offense that is a little bit on the small side, but with Shaush, I think, has the right pieces to challenge a lot of defenses deep. Yeah, I, w- I want to bring up Julian Seneschal also, who I brought up last week, who I... I just saw skying over guys effortlessly in that first game against Toronto. He had, he led the team in goals this past weekend with four. Like to me, he yeah. is he is like the the same mold as the Bono, uh, Sasha Puesikowski, you know, goal scorer downfield threat. So definitely a name to keep an eye on. But I agree, Shaush. I feel like fits really well in this offense. Um, they're I, they're gonna be a lot better if and when Vincent Lemieux comes back because. Really, Brissett has just had to shoulder all of this throwing load for for the first two games, and you know he's he's done a very good job. But I I just think like having only one thrower is is tough, and and you could feel some of the pressure getting to the Montreal offense at times because of that. Well, last year it felt like when they had Brissett, Quinlan, and Lemieux, it was like putting a laser through a prism, where all of a sudden you just right. have these three people. <laughs> who they can space sideline to sideline. And if they either any of them get an open look on either side, it's full field to the end zone. And that's what yes. worked for Sasha Poitsikolsky. It's what worked in 2019 with Kintan Banad. Like that's been the Royale's bread and butter for years. And I think you're right. Like when it just condenses to Brissette and, Brissette and Quinlan and there's a little bit of wind on Saturday in Montreal too, it just, you can see how it, it constricts some of what the Royale like to do out in space with their throwers. Um, you bring up right. Seneschal. He made actually a fantastic layout block too against the Glory uh, off of a turnover and got the disc back right outside the end zone. And Royale just punched it in at a very key moment in the first half when 
Boston had that first quarter lead and the Royale needed to kind of like get their legs underneath them for the weekend. Um, yeah, Seneschal looks like uh, a He's really fun. nice spark plug for this team, uh, I think in year two now with the Royale. Um, but, they're, yeah. you know, in this game, there were 51 turnovers. So it was very much... Uh, <laughs> they're still young, you know. They, they've got a lot of young talent. I, there's 34 attempts. There's 51 turnovers. You know, it's just <laughs> that Canada yeah. style, man. As you kind of brought up on Twitter a little bit ago, there's just... Only yeah. green lights up there. Well, and, and Boston felt like they fit right into that. Like there was oh, yeah. there was little doubt from the onset of that Ottawa game that like okay, Boston was going to play some some uh, classic Canadian ultimate with these teams this weekend. So let's get around to some potpourri items from the rest of the league. I think starting most notably with the Madison Radicals, 18-16 to win over the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds to get their 100th franchise victory. Very typical Madison win at home. Their defense starts out strong, gets three breaks right away. The offense looks crisp. And then I don't, I don't know how to say it because I think it's a little too close to me. I don't have the right perspective to articulate it, but other than to say that this is how the radicals have looked now for since 2019, right? Where they, they have these mm-hmm. periods where their offense and defense play in a way that's to design and kind of to perfection. And then there's a quarter where it's like Maxwell's demon gets in or something. There's just like an element of chaos <laughs> that gets introduced and they stop doing things that their offense normally would do a huck out of a dead disc situation is a laser that goes 70 yards into the fence line, which is what happened at one point in the third quarter for the Radicals. You know, like, I I don't know. Like, they get the win. They get the win, and I shouldn't be a dour (laughs) rain cloud. It's just that we had this whole line fed to us all offseason about how things were going to be different, (laughs) and they weren't quite for the Radicals. And obviously that makes a difference when they – Again, they lost Kevin Brown for the season to the same damn hamstring injury that keeps Ugh, fun, yeah. like happening to him now for two straight Awful. seasons and kind of dating back further. Just sucks, man. It sucks. Yeah. Um, there's no other way to put it. Like there there are it's terrible. Yeah, and there are there are things to really like about Madison, but it does seem like Madison will be a very similar team to twenty twenty one. Yeah, you know, as as the home team announcer and, and a Madison local yourself, would you feel, hmm, how should I put this? Do you feel, would you feel disappointed if you're the Radical? Or like, how, how should the Radicals feel no, after no. this first game? No, like, no, was no, it, no. And I, do you I think they should have won by more? Out. Okay. Like, I, right. I don't think they should be disappointed. There's tons of really, there's tons of good young talent on this team still. They still are phenomenally young even though the offense is now suddenly old because of, you know, the the implementation <laughs> of Josh yeah. Wilson and Andrew Meshnick over there, Tom Annan's on the O-line. Uh, it, it does have some veteran balance around this roster, but no, I think that there's still a lot to like. They still forced Pittsburgh out of their A-game and disconnected Max Shepard from everything else that Thunderbirds were doing. They kind of made him... Uh, a ball stopper. Obviously Shep still had his moments and the return of Thomas Edmonds didn't come without like a sports center level layout of his own and some really impressive, just I think dictation from him as he 
either led mm-hmm. the game in total yardage or was top two or three. Um, but Madison did a good job of forcing the Thunderbirds into sort of high volume possessions on offense, dragging things out. Um, like Thunderbirds only scored 16 goals and it never really felt like they were able to get any kind of momentum beyond a point or two at a time. And so defensively, it still very much feels like the Radicals are going to constrict a lot of opponents in the central throughout the season. And that ability alone to like hold, if you hold an opponent consistently under 18 goals every week, you just put yourself right. in game. Right. And, well, and that's, yeah, that's what the radicals games. always do. Yeah. That's why they'll be competitive and, and stay competitive every year. It, it really is that defense. Uh, I mean, the one, the stat that jumps out to me again is, is the fact that their defensive break conversion rate was again higher than their offensive uh conversions which is which was the case last season i think they were either the only team or one of two teams that actually had a better conversion rate when their d-line had the disc than when their o-line had the disc and yeah 50 percent conversion rate on defense fantastic like that would be a, a league leading percentage if they can keep that up but offensively it's 46 percent so Right. I, I think their offense did look a little different. I feel like they were running a little bit more vertical stack than I've seen in the Absolutely. past. And maybe that suits that suits uh, Kai Marcus's uh, big throwing arm a little bit better. Like a lot of those initiating cuts that he can just rip the disc. And they did attempt 16 hucks, which was more than they had in any game last season. So the fact that they, they might have this new big throwing dimension with a thrower like Marcus, I think that does help. And, and with a receiver like Sterling Kanaki on the receiving end of a lot of those, like they're, they're in a, they're in, I feel like their offense is in a better position than they were a year ago, but yeah, it's like, you know, the results seem to be the same. Yeah. You add these, this new personnel and you switch some guys over, but in the end, like you just look at the numbers and it's not so much different. Like it's still a team that is going to be defined by their defense. I will say, I think it has more potential to be potent than last season. I think with yes. the addition of Agreed. Kai Marcus, and then the team is really excited about the debut of their other Kai, Kai DiLorenzo, a big D3 the Kais, talent, um, yeah. to make his offensive debut this weekend at Indy. You know, I'll be interested to see what the full iteration of the Radicals offense will look like, but it definitely feels sort of like fine China where it it has to all be set up just so for it to look how it did in the first half in Madison, where they converted seven of 10 offensive holds in the first half. They finished 12 of 26. Like there's just, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's schematically. I don't know if it's just reps because it is a new system with new pieces, but like you say, it's the it's the new look, but the same stats. Radicals O-line. <laughs> <laughs> right, agreed. Though I, I do, it does feel like their potential is higher this year, and hopefully they also continue to just gel and, and get a little better as the season goes on too. Their defense is still really impressive, coming away with fourteen blocks, uh, just smothering a lot of Pittsburgh's deep looks. Pittsburgh was only three of 10 on their huck attempts in an offense yeah, that featured, <laughs> you know, Ian Engler, Max Shepard, Thomas Edmonds, and CJ Colicchio to be, to have their deep game taken away like that, I think is very impressive for Madison. And the return of Thomas Coolidge to the defense and particularly his ability to now 
uh, lead some defensive counterattacks and some of those break conversions that are at a lead leading lead leading uh, league leading level. Sorry, there you go. Oh, you got it. <laughs> um, I think that that is a really impressive facet and addition for this Radicals team in 2022. He looked very very good for returning to the field for the first time since 2019. He was very mobile, very good at. Uh, his D-line handler coverage, just very, very impressive return for Coolidge. Yeah, he he looked great. When's Colin Camp coming back to the team, speaking of Radicals vets? Oh, I don't think he is. He is retired, and he'll actually <laughs> be uh, hopefully joining me in the booth as my color commentator. He had to miss the home opener this past weekend due to uh, COVID close contact. He didn't get it, fortunately, but I'm looking forward mm. to having Camp in the booth booth with me it's gonna be fun up there yeah i look forward to listening more so uh just a couple more items one item we forgot to mention in our chicago minnesota segment is congratulating dylan DeClerc. he joined the hundred block club uh he got his 100th and his 101st blocks on saturday um just a really impressive career for DeClerc. i think especially after his all defensive team last year he continues to be a a impact player in every single kind of big divisional matchup for Minnesota. It seems like every time he plays against particularly Chicago and Madison, he gets a quote unquote game changing block. I know it didn't lead to a Minnesota win this time, but playoff game, he had a terrific block in the flat against Pavel Uh, the season opener in 2021 against Madison. He had five blocks uh, at Bree Stevens. Mm -hmm. Like he, he continues to impress week after week. He hasn't even played that many career games, too. Like, I'm looking now, 62 career games. He's reached 101 blocks. Everyone ahead of him, besides his former teammate Brian Schoenrock, have played more games than him. Like, they've all played 70-plus games. Uh, oh, Jeff Babbitt actually has only played 69. But again, more than DeClerc. Nice. So DeClerc gets blocks at, at a very high rate, which I feel like is has been underrated for the wind chill. Oh, he's terrific. And I love, I love when their D line gets him the disc in the end zone and he gets to do one of his oh, yeah. huge feed, feed the guy. Yeah. He, lo- he loves to point at the ref to make sure it's confirmed and then just try <laughs> to nuke that thing through the crust of the earth. He gets amped up. I, I love it's great. Kid. The field mics can always pick him up. Uh, if it's like a game of the yeah, league, yeah. And just hear his bellow whenever he scores those. D-line breaks. It's great. Um, Mm -hmm. Moving on to another Central Division game, the offensive showcase of the weekend. 55 goals put up between Indy and Detroit as Indy sets the single game high so far in the AUDL in 2022, putting up 33 to Detroit's 22. Uh, Keegan North almost going for 1,000 total yards and 14 total scores uh, in his return to the Alley Cats and has been set (laughs) elsewhere with the Alley Cats losing Travis Carpenter for the season to his leg injury. North looking like that in his first game back is extremely, uh, I think, encouraging for this Alley Cats team that needs that. He, I, like, has there ever been a player that has gone from from one season to the next and just so much more clearly looking back at home like not just in the indoor indie environment but just the fit 
of this Alley Cats team versus what he looked like with Chicago last year. He was he was good with Chicago, but like he almost have There's a different there's a different in a level game. though. Yeah, he almost had yeah. his scoring numbers from a season ago in his debut game with <laughs> Indy this year. You know? Right. He was just and if you watch it, it's it it's like you say, it it it's a return to home. He just looks so right. comfortable playing in those indoor confines and getting to really air bend some of those throws and those blades that he loves to settle in. Uh when he can throw in a winless environment, he just he transcends to a different level, he, frankly. Like yeah. he just he has he does whatever he wants. He he has range with every throw basically just past half field in. And then he becomes one of the best, if not the best, red zone players on giving goes and his ability to just like blade around the end zone as Detroit had to figure out on Saturday. Um, he, I don't know, he just, he did that thing that he did so many times in the past, like his first score of the game where he just easily releases from the handler set, kind of just goes on cruise control downfield and sighs <laughs> out a yeah. defender in space as they, right. as it's almost, they it's almost like he's not. It's like he's not looking to make a big play, but then the disc just kind of finds him and right. just rises up over everyone. I, I just crunched the numbers, by the way. His yards per touch, so 931 yards on just 28 touches. 22 completions, one throw away, five goals. He averaged over 33 yes. yards per touch in that game with 14 scores. And yet, and yet, he was kind of outdone statistically in this game as uh, Joe Cubitt <laughs> set the single game throwing record with, what was it, 937? Nick Boucher's... 947? 947. Nick Boucher's yes. is 888, right? Yep. Yeah. And so he almost surpasses it by over 50. Uh, just a huge statistical night for Cubitt. He, of course, uh, found a couple connections deep in the first half. I think he had almost back-to-back-to-back possessions, completing like 60-yard hooks. Uh, So just (laughs) getting yards and gobs. Uh, He finished with eight assists and 80 completions on the night. Uh, Just a really impressive performance, even then loss for Cubits. That's kind of my end of potpourri items from around the league. Did you have any? I mean... We could hit um, I, quickly the. I want in the same in the same game. I want to give a quick shout out to Cam Brock, who scored seven goals uh, in his 2022 debut, which was tied for a game high. Are so you Cam Brock? Not not going anywhere. He is just going to keep adding to his career goal total, which is what like five. I don't know five twenty five twenty eight now or something like that. Uh, now he's Daniel, just, he's cushioning. I think on AUDL Weekly, you might have taken the under on Brock scoring, what was it, 41 goals? <laughs> I think it might have even been high 30s. Uh, he comes out and puts I up don't stuff. know. I th- we'll, have to, we'll have to look back at it. But yes, I, I did take the under on whatever it was set at. Uh, I kind of anticipated Brock uh, becoming more of like a veteran cog more so than just a goal scorer so i I was giving more credit to his his all-around ability and not just being like he's going to be in the end zone all season uh i could very well be wrong but also i do think with the loss of travis carpenter i mean we'll see what happens when they start playing outdoors uh and when these statistical games come back down to earth a bit but i don't know i think brock is still going to be central to what they're doing just as far as moving the disc goes uh, and not necessarily being the guy to cap every single possession with a goal. 
but also seven of 33 like yeah he's he's gonna get his and yet you doubted him and yet you doubted him uh well the season is young (laughs) that'll do it for this episode of swing pass we'll be back on thursday to preview week three action you can follow us on twitter at it's daniel cohen uh, d-a-n-i-e-l-c-o-h-e-n after it's and me at uh, at <laughs> Huck Ruffner, H-U-C-K-R-U-F-F-N-E-R. Uh, we love to talk ultimate day and night. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you soon. <laughs>